pray again for just a second as we get started here. Lord, we submit ourselves humbly before you this morning and ask that your spirit would be producing the work in each one of us that is your desire. Uh, Father, I say humbly because we want to come before you as those who are needy to the one who is the ultimate need filler. Father, we need you and we need the truth and we need your transforming work in us if we are ever to become the people in Christ you mean us to be. And if you are to accomplish through us the good works on this earth, you mean to. So we ask you by your Spirit to speak truth to us, to meet each of us where we're at. Lord, to help us grow in those areas you know we need. Humbly now in Jesus' name, amen. As I get started, let me give you an intro uh, invitation to join the adult uh, Sunday school class for the next few weeks if you weren't there this morning. Bill Bider just uh, has a great teaching gift. Bill's here someplace, Bill. Uh, he really does a sublime job of making concepts simple, maybe as much as anyone I've ever heard. Still heard guys talk from the men's advance last fall about Bill's teaching on the process of temptation and sin. Sublimely simple, breaking down concepts. Bill's in Genesis 1 through 11 for the next three weeks as well. I'm thinking of that because I'm thinking of Genesis uh, 2, the creation account this morning as we get ready to look at 2 Corinthians. It's a long jump from Genesis 2, I grant you. But Genesis 2 verse 7, in the creation story, sort of the second version of it you see there in the opening chapters of Genesis, it says, Then Yahweh God, the Lord God, formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. There in that original creation account, the heavens and the earth are formed, the sun, the moon, and the stars, just like the opening song we sang, they're all there. The plants are there, the animals are there. But the apex, the height of God's creation, isn't there yet. Now God's going to do His best work, right? Because He's going to produce people that are in His image. So what does He do? He uh, scoops the dirt together. Now, if I was going to make something in my image, I don't think I'd scoop a bunch of dirt together. But that's what God does. Scoops the stuff of the earth together, and then he blows into the dirt his breath, and man becomes a living soul. A, a creature with a breath like we breathe in and out. That's the same thought. It's the same word in Hebrew. The Spirit of God breathes breath into that dust, and the dust comes to life. This is truly a miracle. This is truly remarkable. So in the original creation account, dust gains life because God comes to that mound of dust. He's shaped and formed by his hands. He blows his breath into it and it comes alive. And I think Paul had this view in mind, this thought, this imagery, when he wrote 2 Corinthians 4. And that's the passage we'll be in this morning. But in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul's talking about now... Instead of dust of the ground, now he says humanity, believers, those who have come to trust in Jesus Christ, they're now like dust, sort of refined dust, mixed with the right kind of dust, mixed with water, and baked into clay jars, into clay pots. You know, in the ancient world, uh, clay jars, that was one of the most common things you could ever see. So you know when archaeologists dig up ancient sites today, you know what they find? they find what archaeologists call ostracon. That's pieces of clay. 
So the jars in this, uh, the term, the Greek term in 2 Corinthians 4 is ostracon. It's a clay jar. It's another version of Genesis 2. And now in these clay jars, Paul says, we've got a treasure which is God's life itself. It's not just that God blew his breath and got man started. No, now in the story of redemption, it's that God puts his spirit, his life, his regenerated resurrection life of Christ inside these clay jars. That's 2 Corinthians 4. Now, let me say as we go through this, this is a three-point sermon. That's normal. This, as I'm going through this and getting ready, this is like uh, a sandwich. So points one and three, these are the tasty pieces of bread on the outside of the sandwich. And point two, in the middle, this is the chewy, hard to swallow, hard to digest element in the teaching this morning, okay? So we've got a sandwich going this morning. Second Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 18, if you've got a study sheet there, this is in the New American Standard <clears throat> version, excuse me. Let me just insert as I start. Verse 6, Paul had said that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, that's what we as believers have in these clay pots. He says, verse 7, we have this treasure, that knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, the knowledge of Christ, the life of Christ, in earthen vessels, in ostracons, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We, this is Paul himself, but it's also fellow Christians, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, verse 12, death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, and this is a reference to Psalm 116 in the Old Testament, we also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you for all things are for your sakes so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we don't lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal back to verse 7 for our first point this is the tasty slice of bread on the bottom of the sandwich so Paul says here, we've got a treasure. We've got a treasure in an earthen vessel, this knowledge of Christ. So Paul says, this is part of the good news. Inside your clay jar that is your mortality, that is your humanity, that's your physical body, but also all that we were apart from Christ, our, our humanity separate from Christ, into this clay jar, this piece of dirt, God puts 
the knowledge and the life of Christ himself. So right here, verse, 17, verse 7, Paul says, we've got a treasure, God's life himself, in our frail humanity. This is the treasure. And let me go back also here to chapter 3, verse 18. When we went through this earlier, I mentioned I wouldn't develop this then, but I want to mention it now. He says there in chapter 3, just preceding the passage we're in, remember this was the reference to Moses in the Old Testament and the veil and God's glory. He says, We all with unveiled faces are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So this sounds sacrilegious, but back in chapter 3, Paul was saying this, In Moses' day, if you wanted to see the glory of God, you looked up at the mountain when God came down, or you looked at the temple, or you looked at the face of Moses, and you saw that reflected glory of God on Moses' face. But Paul said now under the new covenant, in the era in which they were living, post-resurrection, he says, if you want to see God's glory, you look in the mirror, if you're a Christian. Does that sound mind-blowing? He says, because now the glory that was God on Sinai, now that same glory, that same life of Christ is now inside you as a believer. And that powerful presence of God that was in the temple, that same presence by God's Spirit, he says, is now inside your clay jar. Now, it's not true physically, probably, that when we look in the mirror, we see this uh, glory of God. Our faces probably aren't shining. But the thought is that God's spirit and his power and his presence are inside the clay jar transforming us from the inside out. So that there in chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says to see the glory of God, look at the transforming work God is doing inside your own life. That's the mirror image. When I look at myself in the mirror, so to speak, spiritually, I see the transforming work of God. I see that same treasure. It's inside a clay pot. Now, as we look at each other, we might say we're not very impressive. Or if I look in the mirror, I may say, wow, gray hair and a few wrinkles that weren't there 20 years and four children ago or something like that. But inside the clay jar is the power and the transforming presence of God himself. And that's the same thought Paul's got going here in chapter 4. So it sounds uh, blasphemous, But Paul said, look in the mirror and you'll see the glory of God because Christ is inside your humanity and mine through faith in Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now, you know, if any one of us asked another and said, hey, what do you value most on the earth? You know, what are your treasures? We might think of a lot of things. But Paul's making it clear. There's only one thing ultimately that we have that's a treasure, Ultimately, the treasure we have is Christ's life. It's God himself present in us and with us. So our great treasures, it's not our IRAs. It's not our retirement accounts. They're not our homes. You know, oftentimes people will say, I've got my health. I've got everything. No, your health is not the most important treasure you have either. In fact, the whole point in this passage is your health, it's going to fail. Our our pots, our jars, they fracture easily. They get chipped and abused easily. And at the end of the day, we take these clay jars and what do we do? We put them in the ground because they're worn out and they're falling apart. So the point is, our greatest treasure isn't anything that we can lay our hands on in this earth, on this planet. 
The greatest treasure we have, Paul says, is the fact that Christ himself, by his Spirit, is living inside this frail piece of humanity, this body and soul that you and I have. Thinking back to Genesis 2. God breathed and man became a living soul. And now Christ puts his life inside of us and we gain this new covenant life and we become parts of the new creation already. Everything that's a part of this earth and this planet, one day it will perish, it'll wear out. Isaiah says it's like a garment that you you wear out and you throw aside or, or a scroll. Or Peter says it'll be burned up, but everything connected to this body and this earth, it's going down. So the great treasure we have, Paul says, is nothing we can lay our hands on here. It's the treasure of the life of Christ within us. That's the treasure. And that is the tasty bread on the first part of this sandwich. That's the beginning of the sandwich. We've got a treasure. It can never be harmed. You can never lose this life. It's in you forever, and it is the promise. The Holy Spirit in us, the Spirit of Christ in us, it's the promise of the full redemption we'll have when we see Christ face to face. So we've got a treasure. That's the first piece of bread. Now, as we're building our sandwich here, as we lay on the meat, this meat in the middle of this sandwich is a little chewy. It's a little hard to swallow. But this is where Paul takes us. Uh, The meat of this sandwich is this. Paul says of himself, Paul says to you and I as Christ's followers, affliction, perplexity, suffering, persecution. That's what I've got to offer you, you who've believed in Christ and have this life within. This is what I'm offering you in the middle of the sandwich. Affliction, persecution, and suffering. Now, lots of people, you know, go through parts of their life looking for jobs. You know, so imagine I'm looking for a new life, new standard of living, and checking the paper, and I read something like this. Fed up with your old boring life? We're looking for a few adventurous people to engage in a challenging lifestyle. We offer affliction, confusion, persecution. We promise you'll regularly be knocked down, but not out. You won't die, but it'll feel that way. Apply within. That's Paul's description of his life. And it's the life that he says we as Christians can expect to some degree at least anyway also. Affliction, perplexity, you name it. So this is like that hard to chew, hard to swallow, middle of the sandwich. Paul says, guys, you got a treasure. That's a good thing. But with that treasure, you've got lots of difficulty. And remember, in 2 Corinthians, Paul's boast routinely is in his weaknesses. Now, you'll see this again. You see it throughout the epistle, but specifically in chapter 6 and 12, again in spades. You'll see the same thing. He's boasting in his weaknesses. See, because remember the Corinthians, they're a lot like us. Success, they've got an image of success, and it's not failure. It's a big, good-looking guy. It's a beautiful woman. It's a lot of money in the bank. It's success and stature in the community, etc., etc. The trouble with that image of success, though, Paul says, is that's not what Jesus looked like on this earth. And Paul holds himself up as Jesus in the flesh, if you will, representing God to these folks at Corinth. And their value system's upside down. In Corinth, they're all about the clay jar. And Paul says, guys, you've got it all wrong. It's not the container that's important. It's what's inside. And so throughout this letter, he's boasting in his 
afflictions, his downside. So listen to this list again. He says, afflicted, perplexed, struck down, caring about the dying of Jesus. Notice the prevalence of death here. Delivered to death. Death works in us. Our outer self is decaying. That's another death. That's Paul's description, significant description of his life and your life and mine. Affliction, perplexity, confusion. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, this is a great quote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids us come and die. And that's sort of what Paul's saying here. Treasure in the jar, but the jar is falling apart and the jar is going to have trouble along the way. You know, I'm amazed at myself and, and at us too. You know, when affliction comes our way, isn't our first response to say, Lord, what did we do wrong? Uh, Lord, uh, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Pains in my back, pains in my head, health issues, financial challenges, oppression from others, relationship troubles. I'm so misunderstood all the time, Stephen. I don't get it because I'm really such a nice guy. Lord, why is this happening to me? What is going on? Isn't that our response all the time? Paul says, no. You don't understand. In fact, you remember back in the text, uh, verse 11, it's not just that this stuff happens. Paul says, we are delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. Guys, this is intentional on God your Father's part. These are not accidents in your life. These afflictions, they're from God. Now, I know there's, there's a lot of teaching in the church, especially in the United States and in the West, that really highlights uh, God wants you to have a wonderful life. And, and I believe that. I, I truly do. I think that the Christian can have a wealth of joy and peace in the midst of difficult trying times like no one else on the earth can have. I just don't think that's all he's got for us. And I've got a whole lot of New Testament that tells me that God's got more than health and wealth for me and for you and for anybody who names Christ's name. So it's not that that's all there is, but this is a big chunk of the pie of the Christian life. Now, we pray and we ask God to take all that stuff away. We're sort of like Jesus in the garden, right? He's facing suffering, and he asks the Father, Lord, Father, if it's possible, would you, remind, would you mind taking this cup away, this suffering that you've got on my plate? If there's a way you can get rid of that, I, I'd love it. But not my will, your be done. yours be done. And just like the Father delivered Jesus to death intentionally, God, your Father that loves you, that sent Christ to die for your sins, He's delivering you and me to death too. He loves us just like uh, He did our older brother, our spiritual source, Jesus. Same, same kind of love. This is for our good. This sounds bad, doesn't it? But it is for our good, ultimately. So, Paul wants them to know, guys, what I'm describing to you, this is the normal Christian life. You got a treasure, that's a good thing. But with that treasure is going to come some despair, some temptations to perplexity that other people simply won't have. Think about God too. Uh, think about Paul himself. There's probably not been a person since Paul <clears throat> who worked harder, more tirelessly, with more conviction, more gusto than Paul did 
to honor Christ and to make Christ known to others. And you know, I could imagine Paul going to God and saying, Lord, you know, you told me you want to send me to the Gentiles. It's great, here I am. And you know, what am I getting? The Gentiles are kicking me out of town. The Jews are imprisoning me. The church that I, I founded, you founded through me, they don't like me anymore. And if I was Paul or if I'm looking at Paul, it'd be like, Lord, uh, gosh, there's your guy down there. Why aren't you taking care of him? Lord, do you see what they're doing to your man Paul down there? Don't you want to help him out of those troubles? Don't you want to lift him up, you know, and honor him? Don't you want to take these problems, these distresses, these confusions, these perplexities away? And Paul says, no, guys, this is part of God's plan. The distress is part of God's plan. There's a theme in Scripture, maybe no more than a strong inference, that goes like this. The places of highest honor in heaven are reserved for those who suffer the most here on the earth. And I mean suffer for Christ in God's name on the earth. This sounds odd. Um, in Philippians 2, when it describes what Jesus did for us, that Jesus came down from heaven to earth, he humbled himself, the humiliation, the self-emptying of Christ, of the second member of the Trinity, he humiliates himself taking on our humanity in the incarnation. And then the ultimate humiliation, if you will, he dies as a thief on the cross, cursed under God. And then what's God's response to Christ's utter humiliation and the worst and deepest suffering of anyone in the history of the world? God says, for this reason also, I will highly exalt him, giving him a name above every name and at his name, every knee, in heaven and on earth will bow to Christ. Why is that? Because Jesus suffered the ultimate humiliation and suffered the greatest in God's cause. Paul says in Philippians 2, for this reason, I will ultimately honor my son as a man from the earth. He couldn't gain any more honor as the second member of the Trinity, but as, but as the son incarnate, God now has another opportunity to exalt him. And he says, for this reason. So in Matthew 20, verses 21 and 22, the mother of James and John comes up to Jesus. And she says, Rabbi, do me a favor. He says, what is it? And I'm sure she's in collusion with her sons on this. So she says, grant that in your kingdom, my sons may sit one on the right hand and one on the left. And Jesus says, ma'am, you don't know what you're asking. And he looks at James and John and he says this, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? The implication is the place of greatest honor next to Jesus in heaven, the right and the left hand of his throne, is for those who drink the cup of suffering most like his. So when they say, you know, sort of what's the price of admission? What do those seats cost, Jesus? He says, the cup of suffering is what it costs to sit next to me in my, in my kingdom. Now, on one hand, all Christians, Revelation later makes this clear, we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ on his throne, Revelation says, forever. In Christ and with him, all believers will rule and reign in the universe forever. But when this specific request comes up about these thrones, where people are seated, so to speak, Jesus says... The places of greatest honor are for those who suffer the most fully like him. So for Christians, 
the suffering and the persecution and the difficulties we experience in life because we're Christians, not just because we're in life, because everybody on the earth suffers. Everybody suffers because this this earth is cursed under sin and death. But those are badges of honor for the Christian. Suffering in the future elevates us in Christ's kingdom. And the greater the depth of suffering, the greater the elevation in Christ's honor, in glory in heaven. So, hardship, we we don't like to hear this. This is the chewy, hard to swallow, difficult part of this message. Hardship is part and parcel of the Christian life, the normal Christian life. And those challenges that we pray for God to remove, God is delivering us into these situations that try our souls on purpose. We think he's killing us. He says, no, this is what you need. Now, the third point here, which is the other slice of tasty bread, uh, is this. Uh, We don't lose heart. There's suffering aplenty, but there's also strength and glory, future glory because of that. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, just hear this. As a Christian, that treasure that you have inside your clay pot, your jar, your your humanity, that treasure is the life of Christ. It, It is the seed life of the new creation. Paul gets into this later in chapter 5. You and I already, we're creatures of another world. We are members of a new creation. It hasn't sprung into existence yet, but we are already part of it. That's our future and the life that we'll have in eternity. We've already got inside of us. It's just in this clay jar. And this is the thing about sufferings, guys. There's no suffering that can harm the life of Christ in you and me. Nothing, nothing, nothing can harm the life of Christ the treasure in our clay jars. See, this is the thing. It's not the jar that is significant. It's what's in it. So you know what God does? He breaks our jars. He throws them to the ground so that they get broken open. Why? Because the jar is unimportant. It's what's inside the jar that counts. So when you and I go through deep waters, challenging times, distress, confusion, financial, physical, relational, whatever it is, none of those things can harm the life of Christ inside you. And in fact, God intentionally uses all of those things and more to crack your jar so that more of the treasure inside it comes out, is revealed, is made known, both to yourself, to myself during the process, and then to those others around us as well. God is out to break our jars. We think he he wants to pat our back and make us feel better and say, oh, 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 poor, poor soul. Well, he does. He comforts us for sure. But guys, he's the one breaking our jars. This is no accident. This is intentional on God's part. Now, that might not have sounded very encouraging. I don't know. So let me keep going with this. Listen to his, his description again. Going back through his list, Verse 8, he says, we're afflicted, but we're not crushed. Afflicted there, in the Greek, it means to be pressed down. It means to be, um, to have an external pressure put on you. And this is neat, 
So he says we're afflicted, but we're not crushed. Imagine a grape under a huge weight. And no matter how hard the weight comes down, the grape, it feels the pressure, but it doesn't burst. There's no grape juice here, Paul says. I'm like a grape. I'm under great pressure. I'm being squeezed and pressed down, but I'm not crushed. No matter how hard the pressure gets, I'm still surviving. I'm still here. He says, though we're perplexed, we don't despair. We are perplexed, and that means to be at a loss. I look around myself, my situation, I say, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I feel like I have no resources for the challenges in front of me. That's perplexed, but he says, we are not utterly void of resources or hope. We still know God's in the mix. We don't see how it's going to happen, but God does, so we have hope. He says in verse 9, I'm persecuted but not forsaken. Other people are out to harm me. Paul says, but it's okay because God himself has not forsaken me. He's still with me. You know, Jesus suffered. He was forsaken on the cross by the Father so that you and I never would have to be. So no matter how much the persecution comes, Paul says God never leaves us. We experience God in persecutions in a way we don't otherwise. He says also they're struck down but not destroyed. The imagery is someone or something has knocked me down to the ground. I'm vulnerable, I'm defenseless, and yet I'm not killed. Here at my weakest point, Paul says, they can't kill me. Now, physically, as you know, there's lots of martyrs throughout the the life of the church, then in Paul's day and certainly in our day as well but they can't take away the life inside even if they kill my body. Verse 10, I'm experiencing the dying of Jesus so that Christ's life can be more fully shown. So there's death, but there's life here at the end three times. I'm delivered to death for Jesus' sake, verse 11, so Christ's life can show itself more fully. If you remember way back in chapter 1, Paul said he was living life under a death sentence changed the way he looked at everything in verse 12 last death is at work in us he says but you get the benefit of the resurrection life of christ because of it so in the midst of the suffering the persecution the challenges paul says we actually experience more of the overwhelming life of christ and generally on this earth this experience of more of christ that transforming work within him it only comes when we feel the need you know if life's good uh, blue skies and green lights I'm well fed soft bed good life you know whatever success looks like to us this is all good but ultimately that's not what really matters is it God's after something bigger he's after something better it's those periods of needs in which we say Lord I don't have what it takes I am struck down I'm feeling the weight. I'm feeling the pressure. That's when we experience Christ himself. So the good news of this piece of bread on the sandwich is, even though all this hard stuff's going on, Christ in us is up to the challenge. None of these things are fatal, he says, for us. And the other thing here he says in verse 17 is this. In the big scheme of things, these persecutions these experiences of suffering perplexity confusion he says are short temporary and light and god says because you've gone through these things for my sake in my name it's as if i'm going to take those hard things those negative things 
I'm going to turn them inside out, upside down. I'm going to blow them up. And I'm going to turn what was bad exponentially into something glorious and good for you in eternity. This reward, this weight of glory in the future related to our suffering, but exponentially bigger, brighter, more glorious, and more grand. So lots of suffering, but Christ's strength and presence in it, and future glory because of that. And even with the future glory, Paul says, they're temporary and they're light compared to the glory that's coming. You know, in the time of the despair or the conflict, it feels like that's all we know. But Paul says, nope. Compared to what's coming, compared to the glory God's going to give you, this is just temporary and light. Trying to get a hold of this can be difficult. Let me read to you just a real-life illustration of someone who felt the pressure of being crushed and perplexed and weighted down and confused and wondering, you know, at times, Lord, do you know what you're doing here? Are you, are you with me in this? This is a book called Tortured for Christ. It's uh, Pastor Richard Wormbrand's story. I don't know if many of you read it. Voice of the Martyrs puts this out. This is a 30th anniversary edition, I believe. I think they may be offering it free. It's well worth your time to read. Uh, This was a guy who was imprisoned as a Christian in communist Romania, uh, primarily through the 50s and into the early 60s. He was imprisoned for over 15 years at two different stints. His wife was imprisoned thrown in a camp while he was in prison. His son was turned out on the street to fend for himself. This was his life. Richard Wormbrand, um, had, uh, his back was broken. They would beat his feet literally till the flesh fell off his feet down to the bone. When he saw a doctor after he was ransomed out of Romania in 65, the doctor said, you should have been dead a long time ago. He got out of Romania because Christians in the West paid $10,000 to the communists to buy him out of prison. So he's been, he has literally been tortured. I won't go into all the things they did to he and others like them. All, these were all Christians, and that's why they were there. Um, but he was tortured for 15 years. His wife was tortured, put in a labor camp. His son was thrown out on the street to fend for himself. This is what the communists did to Richard Wormbrand. Now, listen to just a few things he had to say. He said, so in December 1965, my family and I were allowed to leave Romania. They'd been ransomed. My last deed before leaving was to go to the grave of the colonel who had given the order for my arrest and who had ordered my years of torture. I placed a flower on his grave. By doing this, I dedicated myself to bringing the joys of Christ that I have to the communists who are so empty spiritually. I hate the communist system, but I love the men. I hate the sin, but I love the sinner. I love the communists with all of my heart. Communists can kill Christians, but they cannot kill their love toward even those who killed them. I have not the slightest bitterness or resentment against the communists or my torturers. Do you think you and I could say that just in our own strength to people who had not only treated us personally like that, treated your wife that way, treated your son that way? Wow. Sounds a little bit like what God did for us, doesn't it? Listen to this. 
He says, I have seen Christians in communist prisons with 50 pounds of chains on their feet, tortured with red-hot iron pokers, in whose throat spoonfuls of salt had been forced, being kept afterward without water, starving, whipped, suffering from cold. And praying with fervor for the communists. This is humanly inexplicable. It is the love of Christ which was poured out in our hearts. See, that's the deal. The commun- Whatever they did to them, in fact, they said they had an agreement with each other. We preach and you beat us. They would literally, the, the Christians in the prison camps who would preach to each other, they knew that when they did so, they would be arrested, they would be taken to another place, they would be beaten. So, and they would be tortured for preaching. So they just accepted it. Then they came back and they said, where was I? After they were beaten and tortured. And listen to the last one. Oh, two, sorry. Hope I can get through these. These are challenging. He says, in solitary confinement, we could not pray as before. We were unimaginably hungry. We'd been drugged until we acted like idiots. We were as weak as skeletons. This sounds a little bit like what Paul's talking about. The Lord's prayer was much too long for us. We could not concentrate enough to say it. My only prayer repeated again and again was, Jesus, I love you. And then one glorious day, I got the answer from Jesus. You love me. Now I'll show you how I love you. At once, I felt a flame in my heart which burned like the coronal streamers of the sun. The disciples on the way to Emmaus said that their hearts burned when Jesus spoke with them. So it was with me. I knew the love of the one who gave his life on the cross for us all. Such love cannot exclude the communists, however grave their sins. You see, just over and over, no matter how badly they were treated, Christ's life in them could not be crushed or beaten down. It simply rose up more and more. And last here, he says, referring to the Gospels, Jesus said, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. That was because they'd not only seen the suffering... They'd also seen the Savior. For the first time, a few ugly worms, he's talking about the disciples and their humanity, caterpillars that creep on leaves, understood that after this miserable existence, there comes life as a beautiful, multicolored butterfly, able to flit from flower to flower. This happiness was ours too, future glory. Around me were Job's, like the patriarch in the Old Testament that suffered immensely, Uh, Some much more afflicted than Job had been, but I knew the end of Job's story, how he received twice as much as he had before. I had around me men like Lazarus the beggar, hungry and covered with boils, but I knew that angels would take these men to the bosom of Abraham. I saw them as they will be in the future. I saw in the shabby, dirty, weak martyr near me the splendidly crowned saint of tomorrow. See, that's our future. It didn't matter how badly they were beaten down. You cannot crush the life of Christ. You can break the jar. And God's out to break our jars. But you can't destroy the life that's inside it. And these guys, these testimonies of the saints throughout the world, that's the reminder. No matter what happens to the clay jar, the life of Christ inside is more than adequate. 
And God is out to break the jars to release more and more of the life of Christ. Now, where's communism today in Romania? It's gone. It's gone. You know, Richard Vermbrand started Voice of the Martyrs. It's one of the ministries Lion and Lamb supports every month. And in their latest mailer, they said their income, the money they're taking in, and all they do is they support Christians and their families, the persecuted church around the world. Their income since 1990 has increased 40-fold. The communism that oppressed Wormbrand, it's gone. It's in the history books. But the ministry Wormbrand and other Christians like him started, it's bigger than it's ever been and is serving more saints around the world than ever before. You can break the jar, but you can't crush out the life of Christ. Back in verse 7, Paul said, we go through this paradox of suffering for life because God is out to break the jar to manifest more of the life of Christ within us for our own benefit and also for the benefit of others. You know, uh, most of us spend lots of time trying to keep these jars looking nice you know, fit, you know, handsome, pretty, attractive. You know, but they're all, they're going downhill, aren't they? Sooner or later, they're going down. Uh, I'm all for, for health and fitness, you know, being as healthy as we can because we've got things to do. We want to be up to the challenges God has for us. But, but guys, the sort of the vanity that we spend on our clay pots, it's like, God's, no, I've got something better, something more attractive inside. Let me close with this. Uh, This is from the poem written by Thomas Gray, one of my favorites, Elegy, written in a country churchyard. And uh, Gray is, uh, he's standing in the churchyard. And you know, that's where the cemeteries used to be, was right outside the church. So he's in that churchyard, and he's looking at the gravestones, and he's looking at the the, uh, humped mounds of soil above the graves. And he's thinking about the lives those graves represent. And you know, he starts by thinking about the great people of the community, you know, who'd lived before. And and maybe he says, maybe they would have been like a Napoleon in their day. Who knows? But they're the great. But then as, as, the, as the poem goes on, he sort of thinks about maybe the less noticeable, the, the less great, the, the mere mortals like most of us are. And then he describes this this solitary guy perhaps that he ends his life also he's not one of the great and he's in this humble churchyard lying there in his grave and this is what he says about this man's epitaph here rests his head upon the lap of earth a youth to fortune and to fame unknown no wealth no great name no great success fair science frowned not on his humble birth and melancholy marked him for her own a life of sadness and affliction. Large was his bounty and his soul sincere. That didn't didn't keep him hemmed in. He was a generous soul. Heaven did a recompense as largely send. He gave to misery all he had, his possessions, a tear. He gained from heaven, t'was all he wished, a friend. No farther seek his merits to disclose or draw his frailties from their dread abode, his place in the grave. There they alike in trembling hope repose, trembling hope, the future, resurrection, the bosom of his father, 
and is God. This end, that's what happens to our clay jars. They get put in the ground. They're from the earth, Genesis 2 and 1. These, these bodies, they're just the stuff, they're dirt, they're clay. They're in the end unimportant because Paul says what's important is the life inside the clay jar. And God is out to break our jars so that the life, so that the treasure within can be more fully made manifest. This is hard to do, but later today when you're facing a challenge or tomorrow or next week, finances, relationships, all of us face these things, persecution, real suffering, whatever that looks like. If you feel like, Lord, I don't have the strength for this, just stop and say, Lord, thank you that Christ in me is sufficient for this trial. Or, Lord, I am full of fear. That's okay. Because our mortality has got limits. But we can say, Lord, thanks that Christ in me is courageous enough for the situation you've allowed or you've designed to come into my life. So whatever the affliction or the pressure or the weight or the persecution or the suffering that God sends your way, and He will, thank Him by faith that He's out to perfect the image of His Son in us and that though we are perplexed, we're not without hope. And though we're, we're pressed and pressed down, we're not crushed because that's the life of Christ in us. And that's the seed of our life in eternity. And no matter what these difficulties look like now, God says, guys, <clears throat> when you get to glory, I'm going to take that trial, that momentary light affliction, and I'm going to blow it out of all proportion into something glorious I'm going to heap upon you. Father, help us to get over a little view, a view and of life. Lord, help us to expand our vision <clears throat> large enough to see what you're about in our life and the things you want to do through us. Jesus, help us to have done with worrying about things like <clears throat> keeping it all together or thinking we're adequate for the challenges that come in this life. Lord God, thank you that you intentionally bring things to us that are greater than we can handle because you intend to reveal to us and through us more of the perfect life of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to dispense with the vanity that is holding on to these clay jars. Help us understand you're out to break the jar to release more of the life of your glorious Son in us and through us to others. In Jesus' name, amen.